excited uh, to be here with you all today in worship. Um, hey, Bet and Sarah, can you hand me my coffee cup, please? Thanks, baby. Let me, um, let me, let me get a cup of coffee real quick. Get a drink real quick of my coffee. Just real quick. Hold on. I'm a little thirsty here this morning. Um, so, uh, um, thanks, babe. Appreciate that. Let me put that right there for you all. Um, no, seriously, I was so funny. I was sitting there the other day. Obviously, college football is among us. I know there's a couple of things going on. Football season is among us. No, I'm going to call him out, even though he's not here. Uh, Mike Silla, some of you know Mike, Bob and Shirlene's son. Uh, I was sitting there. We're in the middle of worship, and I talked to Scott Crawford, and I said, Scott, I had this funny feeling that Mike is at this service at the nine o'clock service, so that he can won't miss a, he won't miss a single play of football today, right? Because he's in six fantasy football leagues, right? And so I sure enough, I'm we're in the middle of the first song of worship, and I walked over to him, I gave him a hug, I said, "I have a feeling you're here, so it's nine o'clock, so you don't miss a single touch, a single play today." He's he's like, "Oh my gosh, man, yes, you know, it's so funny." So anyway, yeah, but it's a great season, right? I mean, it's I mean, it's like a high in the upper 70s today. Can I get a hallelujah on that? I mean, yeah, I just love it when fall arrives. I mean, it's so good for the heart, so good for the soul. Football season is here, right? For all of you, uh, at least for all of you football widows, I apologize, right? You miss your husband on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, I mean, seriously, it's one of those seasons among us. But uh, actually, I was telling the, the, the 9 o'clock, I had these memories of, you know, our, our, when, when vintage first started, um, you know, guys have like a limited array of things they can talk about. They can talk about their family, they can talk about their job, and they can, and they can talk about sports. And when there's really no sports going on, it makes it really difficult for them. They sit there and go, hey, man, how are you? You know, it's like whatever. And it's like, hey, you know, hey. All of a sudden, football season, and I remember, seriously, 9 o'clock service, excuse me, at the, at the other, other site, we do one service, we'd have all the guys, there would literally be a group of like, six or seven of us, they would stand outside in the front and we would pray visitors wouldn't come because we were so engaged in the conversation about football. They'd walk in like, oh, because a visitor, oh, who got him? You, you get him, you get him, right? And when they're like, hey, okay, anyway, so anyway, but it was just, we talk about, we just sit there and talk football, talk football, talk football, so anyway, it's a good, a good memory and uh, go dogs. Anyway, um, Seriously, uh, let's do this real quick this morning. Do we pass baskets yet? Okay. So if you're a first-time guest, uh, I'm going to send baskets back down right now. If you're a first-time guest, take that Connect card you filled out, put it into the basket. And uh, if you're this, this morning, we always are thankful for our extended time of worship. You know, our, our, our offering before the Lord. That's what we call it. We call it our offering. And it really is as we come and, and it's, it's saying, God, you've blessed me. You've blessed me. Where I am financially, or God, I'm blessed. God, I, I don't have a lot. The widow's might type mentality. God, I don't have a lot, but what I do have, I'm thankful for, and I simply want to give back as a simple act of worship and a simple act of praise for all that you've done for for me and my family. So, Father, I thank you for what you've given. And as we give our offering, it's simply as an act of worship and obedience to the Father. And so, like I said last week, I appreciate and thank all of you for your obedience and. In giving every week, and uh, we're greatly appreciative. All right. Well, hey, just real quick, let me throw this out there for you all before we jump into the message. Small groups start tonight. In fact, they start just here in a couple of hours, the first uh, first couple. Very excited about that. But I want to ask for your help in, the, in our small groups, okay? We're doing something that we're calling an experiment, okay, an experiment. In our small groups, are going to last 10 weeks. But in those 10 weeks, the first three weeks 
are simply going to be a time of kind of getting to know one another. And so, you know, Scott and I were talking, and he said, Steve, he said, in every other church I've ever been in, we, I would never have done this experiment. He said, I would have just jumped straight into small groups. But the culture and the DNA of vintage is that we, we love relationship, we love one another, and we love being in community together. So I thought, let's do this for the first three weeks. Let's just have a time where we play games and specifically get to know one another. It's the idea of Acts 2.42, breaking bread together and get devoted themselves to the breaking of bread into the fellowship. And the idea, and we all get this on a practical level, we are more comfortable sharing personal things with people that we actually know and who actually know us, Right? And for us, let's be honest, some of the greatest ways to bring down walls in our life, really we could call it pride, because that might hurt your feelings, we'll call it walls. We're going to play games that make you look stupid. That's our gift to you, right? No, seriously, we're playing games, these silly games. Why? Because we want to break down these walls so that you can actually begin to build relationship with one another through silly games and doing silly things together. The greatest way to connect is by you laughing at me and me laughing at you. How many of you have friends today because they did something that was just so funny, you broke down laughing, you're like, I've got to know this person, right? This is what our small groups are about in the beginning. These first three weeks is simply an experiment to see how it goes, right? Scientific process, right? I have a hypothesis, then I do an experiment to get to result to see if it works. So all we're doing for the first three weeks is simply an experiment, okay? I know that you're going to get in, and some of you guys, especially, you go, I hate games. I don't want to go the first three weeks, right? Some of you have already said that, right? But I'm simply saying this. I'm asking you to do me a favor, and just engage it and be part of our scientific process to see in our experiment to see if it works. And who knows? You might actually enjoy it, right? How many of you get really frustrated when you tell your, hey, try this, kids, and they won't eat it because they know they're not going to like it? And then you, how many of you ever gotten angry with your kids because they wouldn't, or got frustrated because they wouldn't, raise your hand. How many of you, because they wouldn't try something, right? Okay. There you go. I'm asking you to try it. And do not dare say, well, I'm not going to like it, right? Don't say that because you're going to sound like your kids, right? And I'm going to be frustrated. No, seriously, disengage it, engage the experiment, get into it, and let's enjoy those first three weeks. Because here, and here's, my, here's my expectation. I do not, hear this clearly, I do not expect these people to become your best friends forever, to be your BFFs. I'm not expecting that, right? You're going to get into a group of people, and you're like, oh my gosh, I have nothing in common with them whatsoever. But guess what? They're part of your family. They're part of your church family. You're around them every Sunday. And my guess is that if you will engage them, by the end of that 10 weeks, you'll say something along the effects of, I could never imagine myself actually being close to this person and being friends, but I can't deny that I appreciate them and I love who they are, and I'm so glad that I engaged the experiment so I could get to know them. So then I crawl past by them in the lobby, I can say hello to them and give them a high five, or if it's a guy, I can like slap them in the butt as a good game. Whatever it may be, right? Seriously, you're like, oh my gosh, he said button church. Yes, I did, right? Because that's what relationship's about, seriously. How many, anyway, I'm not going to go there, all right? How many, let me say, how many of you say things around your friends and do things you would never do around anybody else? 
Exactly, right? So we do that in the context of relationship. Sometimes that happens with a good game as they walk by. All right, so do that for me. It'll be appreciative. All right, so let's jump in this morning. If you were not here last week, let me kind of fill you in on where we landed last week. We talked about the reality of, of God calling us to be a people who risk, right? Mark Nicewander came a couple of weeks ago. He spoke a message on risk. Then I followed up last week talking about this deeper level of the risk of Jesus, right? But we said this about risk, and, and we mean like risking uh, spiritually, doing things for the kingdom of God, getting out and doing dangerous things for Jesus, they're maybe outside of our comfort zones, right? All that kind of stuff. And we said the idea about risk last week is that God, listen, God never calls us to risk simply for risk's sake, right? So if I say, I'm going to risk and I'm going to risk in faith this morning and go up onto the roof and I bait and I'm like, all right, I'm going to jump off and trust you, Jesus, right? That's risking for risk's sake. Jesus said in Luke chapter four, that's actually testing God. And we should not do that. We should never risks, risk for risk's sake. For Jesus, risk was always a response and obedience to what God was calling him to do. Right? We said that Jesus said, listen, I do nothing except that which I see my Father in heaven doing. And so the risk for Jesus was that he would sit there in the conversation, right, this unfiltered relationship with the Father, right, unhindered relationship, and God would speak to him, right? And then he, and it says, Scripture says, he said he, I would fo- he, he would follow the Father. He would do as he saw the Father doing. And so basically he would risk only in response to the Father going with him. The idea, Father, I will only go if you go with me. I will only risk if I know that you're risking alongside of me. So we talk about the nature of relationship that Jesus had with the Father. And that we said then that his risk, although it was dangerous, was tempered in its riskiness, right? Because the Father was with him. I said last week, remember, it's like my dad says, go down into the basement. And I'm like, there's no way in the world I'm going down to the basement by myself. I'll go if you go with me because I'm not an idiot. There's monsters down there. There's not really children, right? But if there were, like in my mind, there's monsters. So I say, I will go if you go with me. I walk down. It's still a little risky and scary to me, but not as much because the father is, because my father's with me. He's gone with me. And so we said that this is the idea of risk. For Jesus, his risk and his, and, his, and his danger was tempered because he knew the Father was with him. And not only was the Father with him, but we said last week that Jesus lived with confidence, knowing that the Father loved him. The Father loved him. We said last week, if, if we know that we are loved in a relationship, then everything in that relationship changes, right? When we know we are really, truly loved in a relationship, then our relationship is, it has peace and it has, has this deep level of trust and confidence. And it's, a, it's just a good, healthy relationship. And we said Jesus lived in the confidence that the Father loved him. And that changed everything in the area of risk. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to talk about us, you, living in a relationship of confidence with the Father. Have you been confident in your relationship with him 
and ultimately, but more specifically, and you'll see what I mean later, more specifically, confident of Jesus' investment in his ownership in your life. That you live confident in his investment and his ownership of your life. Now, inherently, we understand confidence, right? The belief, excuse me, the feeling of belief that one can rely on someone or something, right? This deep feeling, this deep conviction of belief that you can rely on someone or something, right? It's a firm, complete, and unwavering trust in that person or in that thing. So a deep level of confidence. And I want to say clearly and unashamedly this morning that I believe with everything in me that we have been designed by God, that we've been designed by God to live with this type of confidence in God, that we would have a firm, complete, and unwavering trust that we can lean into and rely on God in every situation of life. I believe that you've been designed by God to live in this place of confidence, right? A confidence in God, a firm, complete, and unwavering trust that in every situation of life, in every moment of hell that you seemingly are walking through, in every difficult situation or every easy and great situation, that you can have a complete and unwavering trust, lean into and rely on God in every area of life. And so what I want to do this morning, just to, to, to re- reiterate and to clarify, to make, this, to make this point this morning, I am going to cover four entire tra- chapters of Scripture this morning. Right? I'm going to go, and, you're gonna, and I'm going to say the Scriptures, and you're going to go, what? I'm going to cover Romans chapter 5 all the way through to Romans chapter 8 this morning in the next 23 minutes. That is craziness, isn't it? Pure craziness. But let me go ahead and just kind of make a point this morning about this, okay? I am not going to cover a lot of important things that are in it, right? I'm going to hit some, obviously, I'm going to hit some highlights. I'm going to hit some highlights in it. I'm going to ultimately get you to what I believe is the overarching message of Paul in Scripture. Do you know that whenever you write a letter, you write a letter with three or four, like maybe one or two or three main points, and you say a lot of good stuff in the middle, but you're ultimately saying all of it to make one or two points? My desire this morning, us to do that. We're going to cover a lot of stuff, right? But ultimately, my desire is just simply to get the overarching message, the big picture of what Paul is trying to say, and land with you. And specifically, so you can know in advance where I'm going, I believe that Paul, in his message, is speaking about the investment of God into our lives and the confidence and trust then that we can have in relationship with him. God's investment, God's work in our life. That's the answer at the end of the, 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 the test today, okay? What did I talk about today, right? God, this is Romans 5 through 8. God's investment, take notes on this so you can look and study yourself. God's investment and then our confidence because of his investment in love in our life, okay? So here's what I want you to do. I'm intentionally not covering everything, so you can go figure it out yourself. You can study it yourself. James is really clear. You don't really need anyone to teach you, for the Holy Spirit can come and teach you himself, right? The law is no law has been written on our hearts. The Holy Spirit speaks. So your job, right, or your, my homework for you, 
Read Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 this week, okay? If you haven't opened up your Bible this week because you just don't know where to go, I'm telling you where you can go. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Take the notes today and use them kind of as an outline to fill everything else in between this week. If you haven't figured something out about me at Vintage is this. I don't like to give you all the answers, Because then you haven't pursued Jesus to listen to him. My biggest pet peeve in life is if I ask somebody what they think, where they say, well, my pastor said. Don't ever say that. If you don't know it for yourself, your own personal conviction, in your own relationship, in your own study of scripture, then don't say it. Don't ever say, well, my pastor says. I want you to say, well, in my study of scripture and in my time of prayer with the Lord, he spoke, I felt like he said this. Right? So I'm giving you outline. You're going to go study it for yourself. Okay, here we go. Let's jump in. Let me say this real quick, too. There is some debatable Romans chapter eight, 29 through 30. Man, it is like the center point of discussion between the Arminian and reform debate today. Okay, I'm not going to get into the debate this morning. I want you to know that. Okay, you can go debate all that you want to. Again, I'm giving you overarching theme. So we're going to start in Romans chapter five and it begins here. Okay. Romans chapter 5 ultimately begins a discourse on the introduction of sin into the world through the fall. The fall is in early Genesis, and it's when Adam and Eve sinned, or man and woman ate the apple or ate the fruit, and sin entered into the world. Chapter 5 of Romans is basically talked about the impact that sin has on the world in which we live. If you have read or listened to any news this week, you recognize that sin has a massive impact on the world. A whole generation of children have died because of abortion. That is an atrocity, right? Sin entered, and God never intended for abortion to be a part of the world in which we live, okay? Genocide. Happening up in the generation in which you're living. It wasn't just Nazi Germany. It's happening in Africa and still happening today in some degree, right? Genocide is happening. Sex trafficking and human trafficking happening right now. People being sold into slavery here in America. That is the impact of sin. It's happening in Atlanta right now. Someone got sold this morning into slavery in Atlanta. How do we deal with this? Sin has impacted our world. It has pervaded every part of creation, right? Sin has pervaded and and, and gotten into every fabric of society and our culture. Sin has a massive impact. And Romans chapter 5 is talking about this impact that it has on us as human beings. Then it goes into Romans chapter 6, and Paul talks about his life, right? Think about the reality of Jesus. Reality of Jesus having power through the blood, right? We, we celebrate every, every Sunday communion to the, the body and the blood, right? Sin lost its power, right? Romans chapter 6, Paul begins to speak about the reality of sin having lost its power because of Jesus. Because of Jesus and his life. The power of the Holy Spirit moving in his life and moving in the life of the church, right? Comes and speaks this message and talks about the reality of the power of sin. The power of sin being broken through Jesus. Sin no longer has rule or control over the believer's life. And then he comes in in Romans chapter 7. 
You see, I'm going over a lot real quick, right? Romans chapter 7, Paul begins a dialogue. And it's specifically relevant to the Jewish Christians, okay? Specifically relevant to the Jewish Christians. Because when Paul's coming and speaking, and because you got to recognize in Rome, there are two factions of the church, right? This would be the church right here in Rome, split in two. Over here, the Jewish Christians, who their, their primary understanding of Christianity is based on the law and Jesus being a part of that. Over here, the Gentile Christians, who have basically moved beyond the law and are simply relying on the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself, right? And so there's this great tension. So they're living in tension. And so Paul, in chapter 7, comes into the moment and says, Jewish Christians, let me speak to you. You're sitting here, one with the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of sin, and, you're, and you've recognized your entire life that the law was given to you by God. When I say law, think Old Testament, think, think Ten Commandments for your sake, okay? Thou shalt not murder, right? There's over well over a hundred actual declarations in the Ten Commandments, but there's specific ten, right? Ten Commandments come in there. And so the, these guys are like saying, we love the law. What do we do with the law? We're at tension, Paul. We thought the law was to be used by God. We thought the law was it. We don't understand. What do we do without the Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? So, he, so Paul comes in. And you're gonna, I'm going to bring us back to what this means for us in a second, okay? You, let me say this. When you, I'm giving you context because if you read Scripture... Outside of the context in which it's written, it will lead you to cult, cult, cultness. People who read Scripture forever, how they want to read it, it leads to a cult. It leads to whatever you want it to say. Scripture was spoken at a specific time to a specific people with a specific message in a specific context. You be very careful that when you read Scripture, you understand the context in which you're reading it. I'm giving you the context of Romans 7, okay? So you can read Romans in the context of it. So Jesus, so Paul's coming and speaking. He says, now listen. He says, listen, the law. The law was given as a teacher. It was given as a tutor. It was, it, the law was given by God to point, to teach you the things that are killing you in life. It's simply pointing out Issues and things that are separating you from God and causing you to die spiritually. But the law has no power in and of itself to help you conquer sin. So let's put it in this perspective, okay? Alan Hanley was here at the first service. So we're right where Marilyn Gunderson sitting. Marilyn, raise your hand. Hello, Marilyn, okay? Alan's sitting right here. He's a general practitioner in, in Cartersville, he's a doctor. He's very bright. He knows medicine, right? So let's say that's, let's say to Marilyn, Marilyn, you're, you're sitting in this seat. You have the, you have the anointing of doctorness, right? No, right. Marilyn, Marilyn's a doctor. And so time machine. How many of you love the idea of a time machine? You would love to go back in time. I think it'd be cool, right? I've always thought about going back in time. So, so Marilyn, she's a doctor in 2012 and she has this time machine, she goes back to the 1940s, she sets up shop, and this man walks in. 
And the man is like, I mean, he's hawking up along when he calls. You know, that, you know that kind of thing, right? He can barely breathe, right? He's sitting there having one of those, one of those coughing attack moments, right? And Marilyn, because she's so bright, she, he goes, I feel like I'm dying. I can barely breathe. I don't know what it is, right? It's like there's just something clogging my lungs. And so Marilyn from 2012, knowing what time, what time she's living in, says, well, do you smoke cigarettes? And he goes, yeah, I smoke about two packs of cigarettes a day. And she looks at him and says, cigarettes kill. You're living in ignorance to that. You don't know that because a surgeon general's yet to tell you in the 60s, right? All right. But it's killing you. And he goes, really? See, he was, see, but he was he was doing something that was killing him. He didn't know what it was. She came like the law, like the teacher, like the tutor, and put his her finger on it and said, "This is the thing that's killing you." That's what the law is. The law was given to the people of God. Say, "Hey, these are the things that are killing you." A teacher and a tutor, a doctor to come and say, hey, here are the issues. Here is the issue that you're facing, right? But he all of a sudden looks back and says, well, Dr. Marilyn, give me something. Give me something. You're from 2012, right? You have power. Some, there's some sort of magical pill that you can give me to help me get over this. She looks back and says, I have no power to help you. I have no power to help you conquer smoking. See, that's what Paul's getting at here in, in Romans chapter 11. He's saying the law is simply a tutor, it's a teacher, it's a doctor to point out the, the ills that are literally killing you, right? But there's no power in the law itself to heal you or to set you free. And so then in the second part, we're going to read this because I think it's so relevant, at least in our experience, I want, he, he says, now, here's what my life looked like under the power of sin, right? Under the power of the law of sin and death. So let me just say this real quick. Press pause. Everybody look at me, okay? I'm about to read something, and I want you to clearly understand this. I'm going through a lot of scripture this morning for one simple reason. I believe that the Bible defines my theology. Scripture defines what I believe about God not my experience. My theology is not based on what I do in worship. It's not even what I do in prayer necessarily. It's specifically Scripture itself. God teaches through the Bible. If you want to know what God thinks of situations and what he believes and how we should respond, then we engage Scripture. But unfortunately in our culture, and hear me on this, You've been taught that your experience and what you feel should define how you respond, how you live in life, and ultimately then it defines your theology. If it feels good and I enjoy it, I do it. How many of you have ever said, well, I don't really enjoy that, so I'm not going to do it. I don't really like what they do at youth group. I don't really like what they do at church. It's not really fun. Who gives a rip? Scripture defines my engagement of theology and what I do in life. So in my experience, someone punches me and what do I do? I want to punch them back, 
Right. And so we create a theology of why it's okay to punch people in the nose. People do all the time. While scripture says, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. If your enemy curses you, what do you want to do? You want to stand up and fight and curse them in response. Scripture says, bless those who curse you. Your theology, listen, not majority of us in here have your theology based on what you feel, right? Because you've been taught that individual rights is the ultimate reality of my life. If it doesn't fit me, doesn't feel good, then I don't want to do it. Jesus does not believe in individual rights. He believes in lordship and that it's his right to speak whatever he wants to into your life. You don't ultimately get a say-so. All right, that feels good, doesn't it? All right, so Paul is speaking into the moment. Speaking into the moment, saying the law was sent. And so scripture then this morning, I'm going through scripture, because scripture is supposed to define what you think, how you feel, and how you respond. Scripture defines what you do. So scripture this morning, going through a lot, so that scripture begin to get into us, begin to understand. So, so Paul is speaking and saying, listen, in, in chapter 7, go ahead and turn your Bibles there, starting in verse 15, Paul's painting a picture of the reality of a life lived in his own strength, right? Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, apart from Jesus, his past tense, okay? He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, everybody hear this. Every youth, look at me. Read, the, read this. This is going to be your, what I'm about to read right here on these screens, this is your felt experience, every single one of you. What I'm about to read, you're going to go, yes, I completely identify with this, okay? I want you to understand this. This is going to define all of your experiences, okay? Uh, verse 16. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree. Hold on a second. Look back. Starting in verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. He goes, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do, it's not the good that I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me who does. A lot of do-do in this, right? Verse 21. So I find this law at work. Hear this. Does this define you? I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man, what a wretched human being I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Pause. Paul comes into the moment. He says, man, the, I, I, I love what the law says. And I want to obey it. I plan on doing it. And also I find myself doing the very thing that I do not want to do. In fact, the very thing that I hate that's what I find myself doing again and again and again and again. And I'm just overwhelmed and overcome by condemnation. And I am a wretched, wretched, wretched human being. And I, I deserve death. There is nothing good about me. Nothing good in me, right? What a wretched human being I am. 
Paul comes into that moment, has this revelation, dealing with the sin issue, right? He's struggling in the moment. He's wrestling with the power of sin. We can all identify with this tension and with this wrestling. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then the epiphany, the, the, the awakening moment, this unbelievable reality. Who will rescue me? This is the thing. Listen, this, this next verse, this is what gave confidence to Paul in every moment of his everyday life. It's the thing that defined everything about this. What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this life of sin? Thanks be to God, verse 25. Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Who will rescue me from chapter 5 and the power of sin? Who will rescue me from this law that's just a tutor but has no power in itself to set me free? Who will rescue? Who will give me power? Who will give me the ability to, to live with sin not defining my life? Who will give me the power to do the things that I know I'm supposed to do and to not do the things that I know I'm not supposed to do? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 8, Therefore, because this is true, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Listen. Listen. Paul speaks into the moment. Jesus had set him free. He was no longer, listen, was he a wretched man in his flesh? Yes. He was he a wretched man now with the Holy Spirit inside of him? No. Right? His flesh is dying. It's, it's, it's dying every day. But his spirit man is alive in Christ. Sin. Listen, Jesus set him free. Jesus did the work. Jesus intervened. Jesus, simply put, is the champion of Paul's story. And he had confidence, absolutely zero in his flesh. And he had 100% in his power, in the power of the law, the duty, the things he had to do. He had 100% belief and confidence in the power of Jesus in him. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in chapter 8, 3 through 27, he paints a picture of a, of, a, of a life that is controlled by the Spirit of God within our sin nature. He reveals our position, who we are now as children of God. He says, he says we've been, a, listen, this is beautiful. I mean, Timmy and Melanie, get this. They've just adopted Piper. Guess what? Piper is not just an appendage to their family. She has been intertwined. They, they have spent the last umpteen weeks in Alabama. God help them, right? With this child, right? This loving this child. This child is a part of their family, a part of life. Paul speaks this in, in, in verse 3 27. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the king. We've been grafted into the family vine. I am now an heir of God, and I'm a, I'm a co-heir with Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus, it belongs to me. What do I do with this? It can't, it's too much for me. It's too good for me, right? Oh, what a wretched man I am. I was. Jesus has come. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a child of the king now. I can't talk negative about myself anymore, right? Because I belong to the family of God. I'm a, I'm a great man, a great woman, not because of me, because of the work of Jesus in my life. Does that define your life? 
Or does this experience over here that Paul named define your life? Paul had confidence in nothing he had done. He had confidence in the work of Jesus in him. He said over here and said, I know I'm nothing. I know I am a worm. But because of the grace of God, the gift of God, the movement of Jesus, him being present in my life, I'm a, I'm a child of the king. I'm a co-heir with Christ. Jesus made it so that everything that belonged to him belongs to me, and I'm undone. So we jump in, verse 28 through 39. I want to read this, this section to you, okay? 28 through 29. says, So we know that in all of these things, everything he's just named, all these things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. We, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Seriously? And he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all? How will not also along with him graciously give us all things? And who can really bring any charge against those God has chosen? It is God who justifies. And who in the world can condemn me and condemn the church? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God and is interceding. He's our lawyer forever fighting on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, do you really think that trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword could ever separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul defines, begins to define the nature of God's investment into the lives of those whom he has called to him. Hear this, and everybody listen to me very quickly. These verses are simply a wake-up call to us about who God is to his children. It is a wake-up call as saying, Are you living in this reality? Because listen, friends, this is your reality. This is your reality. Verse 28 says, we know that in all things God works. I love that. God works. God moves. God's investing. Do you know that God doesn't sit in heaven all day long, listen to the fat little cherubs play their stupid harps and sing? He doesn't do that. He sits up there. He actually isn't, he doesn't sit anywhere. He's actively moving. He is working, right? He's working on our behalf. In the 1700s and the 1800s, there's this, this movement called deism. Deism had this idea that, yes, God is, there's a God, a supreme being who is a creator, but it's like a clockmaker universe, right? He sets it in motion and then he pulls back and leaves it to its own devices, right? Paul's saying that's a load of Whatever, hogwash, right? It is a load of hogwash. Because here's the reality. He's investing. He's moving. God is working on our behalf. Verse 29, right? Excuse me, 28. God works for the good of those who love him, who are in relationship with those he has called to him. God is working. This is a beautiful picture. God is invested. I have confidence 
in my life. Why? Because he's invested into my life and he's working in my life. It goes on in, in verse 30 and 31. It says, those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. He predestines in verse 30, he calls, he justifies, and he glorifies. The picture we see very clearly in, in this, in the overarching picture, is simply this. You don't save yourself. God does the work. It's not you ultimately who calls yourself. God woos. God calls. God moves. All we get to do is simply respond in the moment. You don't get yourself saved. Jesus calls, Jesus woos, Jesus moves, and you simply respond. It's not a work that you can do in your own strength. It's a work, that's the work of the law. Law doesn't save. Only the Spirit of God saves. Jesus saves. Jesus moves. The picture he's trying to say, listen, you can't do anything. It's God's investment. All of this points to the work of God in our lives, not our own work and our own behalf. It was the movement of God, the work of God. He is wholeheartedly invested into your life. Paul is speaking in the most saying, listen, Jewish Christians, I want to release you from the fact that law can't save you. I release you from feeling like you have to work for this. It's grace by faith, not by works. Because if you could do it in your own strength, you would boast about how great you are because you were a fallen being. Jesus saves. It's his work. It's his investment. This should fill you with hope. Why? Because he's always working. This is the picture. He justifies. He calls. He glorifies. He's always moving and investing. Verse 31 Excuse me. This is the heart of what I mean by having confidence in Jesus. He is fully invested. I have confidence. Why? Because he can't help but work in my life 24-7 every day, all day, before I was born and after I'm born. He's always moving around me. That fills me with confidence. I stand at the top of the, of the, of the stairs looking down into the basement. I say, I'll go if you go with me. He says, I'm already down here. Oh, I'm coming down then, right? It's good. He's moving. He's before. He's after. He's all in between. He is moving. Verse 31, Paul echoes goes this sentiment. He says, what then shall we say in response to this? Oh, if God is for us, then damn those who are against us. That's what he's saying. It is God who is for us. What then shall we say in response? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you see the place that he lives in over here? This confidence, the investment, the work of the Father. Do you, do you see this? He, he recognizes the love of the Father, not only his love, but his investment, his work, and his life every moment of every day. He goes on verse 32 and paints this picture. He says, hey, listen, if God didn't spare his own son, then why do you think he won't give you everything else that belongs to him? Jesus is the best that he had. He gave the best first, and everything else is just secondary. This is him investing into you. Wake up. Why is he saying, wake up, Roman church? Wake up. Verse 33. And really, who can bring any charge against you? Because God's on your side defending you. Do you really think it can work? Right? Verse 34. And he is, who is he that condemns, right? Sentences us to death. The enemy trying to, how many of you that know the enemy tries to steal, kill, and destroy? And Paul is saying, that's silly. That's just silly talk, right? 
Christ Jesus who died, more than that, he was raised to life and conquered, right? The blood, and, the blood of Jesus, sacrificed right here, right? He's at the right hand of God, and he's fighting for us every day. He's interceding. He's like a lawyer. He's the best Christian lawyer in the history of the world, right? He's literally interceding, standing in the gap between us. This is what he's doing, is investing. 35, who then can separate us from the love of Christ? Do you really think that, sh- that trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword can really separate us from God? Of course not. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. In our trouble, in our hardship, in our persecution, in our famine, in our nakedness, in our danger, and with a sword to our throat, even in those moments in the eyes of the world we are defeated, in the eyes of God, we're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Why? Because of the investment of the living God in the life of his children, who's already at the bottom of the basement waiting for us because it's who he is. He's moving in our lives because he loves us. And that's our identity now, not as those who have been conquered by sin, but who are now more than conquerors through Christ. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this life of sin? Thanks be to God. Thank you, God. Jesus can. goes on in verse 38, for I'm convinced. Paul's convinced. That's a big deal. I'm convinced. I'm convicted. Everything in me. Neither death or even life itself. Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This message this morning is a message of Paul. Did I get every, all, all my theology right? Probably not. Do I think that Jesus is bigger than sin? Of course I do. Do I think he sets us free? Of course he does. Do I believe he wants to move in power in your life because he loves you? Of course. And the message we get at this morning, the overarching message of Paul, speaking to the Romans, he's saying, listen, sin's present, and sin looks really big to you, but Jesus sets us free because he's invested into our life Because he loves us. And in that, we can have confidence. If we'll step into this reality, if we'll simply let the scripture, if we'll let scripture, which is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training up in righteousness, so that you can be Christ-like, if we will let this define what we believe in life and not our felt experience, as this begins to define our life and creep into every pore of our being, then it changes us forever. Youth, we don't ever talk about reading your Bible so that you can, have a, so you can make God happy. We have you read the Bible because it defines your life so that you will con- be a conqueror for the rest of your days. Don't read your Bible because you're supposed to. Read your Bible because it has the words of life that will define every moment of your life so that you can be a conqueror and more than a conqueror in Christ. Uh, Parents, if you don't read this and not modeling for your children what it means to be a follower of Jesus, then you're in sin. Model for them what it means to be in Scripture and to be a people of the Word. Is that that hurtful? No. It penetrates, Scripture penetrates to soul and marrow, right? Soul soul and spirit, joint and marrow, gets to the core of who we are because it produces life. Your call is to produce life in your children, Go to the place, the only place that ultimately teaches about it. So, 
this morning, you've been created, you've been created to walk in confidence because of the investment of Jesus so that you can risk for the kingdom purposes of God. Get into the word, right? 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in right standing. So you can be in right standing with God, righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you don't think that you can live victorious in life, Timothy said it's because you're not ultimately giving yourself to this and allowing this to define your life. Scripture teaches us. It defines for us our theology and understanding of victory in life. It's not a duty to be done so I can check it off. It specifically speaks life. Is it say, does it say difficult things? Yes. Is it hard to understand? Yes. That's why you get around people. People all the time ask somebody you think knows more than you and have them help you. All right? All right. All righty then. Let's pray. Father, the call of today is to be put into your bow and to be shot and to be called to arms. Scripture teaches in 1 Corinthians 13, which we're about to study for the next 10 weeks, God, that if we have all the power in the world but have not love, then we are worthless. Father God, we can't love well until we first receive love well as an understanding, a great confidence that we have that you are for us, that you are not against us, that you are invested into our lives, that you are fighting for us, God. And so this morning, Jesus, there are so many layers to this message for what you're doing right now in our lives and at Vintage. And Father, we just cry out and say we don't understand all of it, but we're asking for grace. We're asking for the ability to begin to get a hold of this. Father, I want to pray. God, I recognize, Lord, that we have, we've been raised in a church that's made the Bible irrelevant and boring to us. God, we ask forgiveness for that. Father, we ask forgiveness for that. God, I pray that this morning that you would give us a passion and a love for your scripture like we've never known before. Teach, teach us about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Teach about the movement of your spirit. Teach about the miracles, God. Teach us about good theology. Teach us about right standing with you, God. Teach us about our call to be obedient to you and not to our feelings and emotions, God. Teach us, Holy Spirit, what it means in the Beatitudes, God, to... To, to turn the other cheek and to walk the extra mile, Jesus. To teach us what it means, God, to be a servant leader by washing one another's feet, God. Shape us and change us, Jesus. And God, we pray that in this, that it would be grounded in this deep biblical conviction that we are no longer bound by sin, we no longer stand condemned, but that God... There is now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who have been called according to your purposes, and who walk in obedience to you. Lord, today, move us from this camp, Lord, of sin defining us, to doing what we hate to do and 
not doing the things that we want to do. And move us to this camp, God, of obedience, God. As scripture washes us clean from bad ideology and bad theology. Holy Spirit, come. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.